please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. To Luke chapter 4. You'll find the uh, notes to follow along in the bulletin. Luke chapter 4. And this morning's message is part one of a three-part chunk of Luke. I'll be dealing with about 10 or 12 verses at a time, but I want to at least begin this morning by reading Luke 4, 14 to 44. The reason why I want to read that chunk is I think, I think it's one unit. We've talked before about the, the writing style of capping a topic at both ends, and this is another one of those inclusios. You'll see in verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the report about him went about through all the surrounding country. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And how does it end? In the last verse of 44, he was preaching in the synagogues in Judea. This is a capping section of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, capped by this notion of Jesus teaching and preaching in the synagogues. So let's read this Heart of God's word, Luke 4, 14 to 44. It'll take us three weeks to get through this, but I want to read the entire text. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And he said to them, and they they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up in the three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mist, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching there on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his words possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the demon had thrown him down in the midst. He came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. The demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak as he knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him, and they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach good news of the kingdom to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. You notice the theme here, the the report growing, Jesus, the itinerant preacher, Jesus beginning his ministry in Galilee, his hometown. Now, Some time potentially has passed as people try to harmonize the Gospels. This could be as much as a year after his temptation by Satan. We already know from the discussion, the response of the people, he's already done some ministry. But but Luke opens up this section of the book, and we are in a new section. From from Luke 4.14 all the way to chapter 9, verse 50, is Jesus' public ministry. And then strikingly, in in Luke 9.51, we read this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that becomes a turning point in Luke's gospel. From Luke 9.51, Jesus is focused heading to the cross. He's heading to Jerusalem. He's beginning a long journey to Jerusalem where he will ultimately be arrested, tried, and crucified. So from 4.14 through 9.50, we have Jesus' public ministry. Jesus, the itinerant preacher, Jesus teaching the masses, Jesus in his message that he would preach as he went about from town to town. And Luke introduces this with sort of an overall statement. We see that here, Jesus' growing reputation. And and we get this word, that word is going out, that there's a buzz, if you will, positive word on Jesus. And then we get a specific actual event Luke starts this whole section of Jesus' ministry by giving us an example of this type of preaching in the synagogue and the response of the people. And then we get some confirming signs, miracles of Jesus, and all of this capped by this notion of the word spreading, the the word getting out, and Jesus teaching in the synagogues. We're going to look at that over three weeks. We're going to look this week at Jesus um, showing up and preaching Isaiah 61 and the gospel according to Jesus. Jesus' declaration of his own mission. And then next week, we'll look at Jesus, the the question of authority, the question of why they should receive his testimony, that whole bit about him quoting um, Naaman the Syrian and the widow of Zarephath, and why these people who are speaking so well of him now want to kill him. What what could he have said? We'll look at that next week. And then in the third part, in, in two weeks' time, we will look at the miracles Jesus does, the very miracles that confirm that he is the one to give sight to the blind, that he is the one to set captives free. He is the one 
anointed and appointed to preach good news. So we'll look at that over the next three weeks. So this week we're looking at the gospel according to Jesus. Now Jesus now will give his first public address, his first, at least in Luke's gospel, his first public speaking. And it's going to be centered on his own understanding of who he is and what his mission is. Up to this point, we've had the testimony of, of Gabriel the angel, of what Jesus will do and what he will accomplish. We've had the testimony of John the Baptist's father, of what Jesus will do and what he will accomplish. We've had, we've had Simeon and Anna testify and testify to what Jesus will do and what he will accomplish. And here, in his own words, our Lord and Messiah states his understanding of his messianic ministry what the good news is he came to preach. So let's, let's dive in looking at this in three points. First, verses 14 to 15, Jesus' growing reputation. Now Luke introduces this. This is sort of the paradigm of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus, Luke gives this sort of almost programmatically. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. That's the first point we're to get. What we're to see as we keep reading Luke's gospel, we're meant to see the effect, the influence of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. The Holy Spirit came down after he was baptized, while he was praying, and now in that power he comes forward, and in that power he speaks, and in that power he works miracles. We're to understand that as an interpretive foil for the rest of the book. How is it this man can work the works that he does the Spirit of God is upon him. In fact, that's how the quotation that Jesus himself reads begins in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's, that's an emphasis here. Luke wants us to understand. Jesus wants his hearers to understand that he is operating through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he returns to his hometown. Now, we know he was born Bethlehem. And then they went down to Egypt for a number of years. But eventually, Jesus returns, and he grows up, and he becomes known as Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's, he's in his hometown. He's gone out to the wilderness to wherever John was baptizing in the Jordan. And now he's returned. And he begins his ministry, we're told, teaching in the synagogues. He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And Luke's highlighting that initially, at least, Jesus gets a positive response. In fact, in all of the Gospels, there's always this tension. There's always aspects of Jesus and his ministry that the, the culture and the people love. There's always aspects of Jesus and his ministry that people find offensive. I, I think that's true even today with the, with the gospel. There are aspects of turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor as yourself and loving, loving those who are weak that our culture loves. Culture thinks that's great. Culture generally likes the Sermon on the Mount. And then we get to issues like the Christian sexual ethic or things like that, and our culture says, oh, no, oh, no. Or the exclusivity of Jesus, and our culture gets offended. That same tension is here. People are speaking well of him, but we'll see next week these people who are speaking well of him in, in verse um, 22. All the people spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words. Just a few verses later, verse 29, they want to throw him off a cliff. They want to murder him. They want to kill him. There's that tension, the beauty and the ugliness of, of the, the way the culture views Christ and his message. And we'll see that unpacking the Gospels of Luke. Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit, and Jesus begins teaching and preaching. And, that, and that's another thing to note as well. Luke puts Jesus first and foremost not as a miracle worker, but as a teacher. Jesus' miracles are signs that confirm his message. He is not first and foremost a miracle worker, He's first and foremost a prophet of God, speaking God's word to God's people. He's first and foremost one who comes with a message. He is a herald. He is a teacher. 
He's a preacher. And he works signs and he works miracles because they confirm his message. And again and again, the people miss the message and just want more miracles and signs. But Luke wants us to know right off the bat, there's no mention of miracles here. In this sort of overarching statement in verses 14 and 15, he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Here's a man filled with the Spirit, returning in the power of the Spirit to his hometown, reports going out, and he's going about teaching in the synagogues. The synagogues are the communal um, places of worship for Jews. He's got a growing reputation. And the reason that's important is this growing reputation is going to set up in the narrative, in the, in the storytelling, the anticipation that we see in verse 20, where every eye is fixed on him. That's why Luke starts off giving us this information, so that when we get to the particular event of Jesus' teaching in the synagogue, we understand why when he sits down, there's just silence and every eye is on him. Well, because the report's been going out. Word has been getting out. He's had a growing reputation. So now let's, let's move to point to a hometown sermon. A hometown sermon. We know this is his hometown. That's usually the phrase used in verse 23. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown. So Jesus has been doing ministry, and now he has the opportunity to speak and to teach in his hometown. What will happen? What will happen? We read this. He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. So Jesus is regularly participating in the corporate worship of the people of God. Just pause there. This is his custom. Jesus, we talked about how he identifies with his people last week, how his suffering identifies with us. Does Jesus need sacrifices and cleansing? No. Jesus still gathers with God's people, participating in the corporate worship. He's regularly going, gathering with God's people. We, therefore, all the more need to do so as well, as was his custom. And, and we learn from Acts in, verse, uh, in chapter 13, 14 to 15, a little bit about what the synagogue worship service looks like. We also have some extra biblical information that confirms this, but listen to um, Acts 13, 14 to 15. Peter, I mean, sorry, Paul on the Sabbath, they went into the synagogue and sat down, and after reading from the law and the prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so what there is is a reading from the law, a reading from the prophets, and then some sort of sermon or exposition, and extra biblical information verifies this. As best as we can recreate in the first century, the There'd have to be at least 10 Jewish men gathered together. They'd get together, they'd recite the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There'd be a reading from Moses, there'd be a reading from the prophets, there'd be an exposition, there'd be a prayer, and the service would be ended. And so Jesus stands up, and this is the second reading, the reading from the prophets, and, he, and the scroll is given to him, the scroll of Isaiah, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written and began to read. What he reads is remarkable. And if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 61, I think it's worth looking at this for a good minute or two. This is where Jesus goes as his self-identification of his mission and his purpose, what he is about. Now, in the latter chapters of Isaiah, and we'll see this clearly, these are prophecies spoken to the returning exiles. Now remember this. Isaiah wrote before Judah went into exile. 
But God's word is so sure and so certain that Isaiah, who's living before Nebuchadnezzar shows up, not only predicts the deportation, but the return from Babylon. And here, in these final chapters of Isaiah, words of encouragement, words of promise, words of rebuilding come. Let's just read read some of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastation. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat of the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, there shall be rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they possess a double portion, for they shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will continually give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the offspring of the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before the nations. The reason why I think it's worth reading all of that is I want to make it clear, and hopefully it's clear to you, that this is a promise of a rebuilding of Israel to the remnants from Babylon, very similar to the promises Zechariah made. And if you were here when we did our study through Zechariah, the Lord God promises and has promised repeatedly that the ruined cities would be rebuilt at a time of blessing and prosperity and favor with the Lord was awaiting Israel. And we would say to some extent, and to much extent, it is still awaiting We refer to this as the millennial kingdom or the reign of Christ on earth that most clearly is spoken of in the last two chapters of Zechariah. We won't go into that now. My point is this. There's a very real sense in which this passage has not been fulfilled yet fully. And yet Jesus mines part of this passage. You notice he he quotes part of the passage but not other parts. He talks about the year of the Lord's favor but not, doesn't quote the bit about God's wrath and vengeance. What I, what, I, what I understand Jesus to be doing is, is taking some of this, what God is promising Israel, and recognizing that parts of this he is fulfilling right now. And there are other parts of this passage that have yet to be fulfilled. The cities have not been rebuilt. They are not priests of God yet. Israel, in fact, remains in, in national, national unbelief. Now, another important thing from this passage to, to consider is this. This passage, and we're back in Luke now. Turn back, turn back to Luke. 
chapter 4. This passage in Jesus' statement of his mission has, has been grabbed repeatedly by more liberal biblical students. And, and the, an attempt is made by reading this to sort of redefine the Christian gospel and redefine the Christian message as, as one of social working, reworking. If you take this passage and read it with a certain Marxist light, the Christian message becomes one of just freeing people from oppression, one of just creating social justice, one of just giving people opportunities. I was speaking at a symposium uh, a few years back with a, with a college professor, and he went here and cited this specifically as the gospel, the Christian mission, and, and he clearly understood it purely in terms of, of, of ending racism and of, of, of women's right to vote and things like that, and just this ongoing mission of freeing peoples and empowering peoples. And, and so we got to ask the question, is, is that valid? Is that what Jesus is saying? Now, we're so hardwired the other way, you just got to stop and look at it. Certainly in its initial context in Isaiah, that's at least part of it, right? Israel would literally be captives in prison cells in Babylon. Literal cities were now ruined. Literal blessing was promised. And, sh- and sure enough, Jesus, in the, in the, the rest of this chapter, is going to literally heal the oppressed. People who are oppressed by demons will be freed. And so we've got to look at this and say, is, is it possible that they've got it right? I don't think they do. But we've got to look at it and realize that, that why someone might think that. Is the Christian message simply one about giving power to the oppressed, freeing the underdog, helping the poor and the weak? Certainly, certainly the gospel, as it, as it unpacks in our lives and as we impact our culture, will, will bear that type of good fruit. Is that really all that Jesus is saying? Yeah, bear that in mind as we go through this. And I hope from this text itself, we'll see clearly, no, no, that cannot be what Jesus means. So let's go through this. Jesus' spirit-empowered mission. Now, there's five, five things this passage says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, one, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Three, the recovering of sight to the blind. Four, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Five, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I've just collapsed that into four simply because proclaiming liberty to captives and setting at liberty those who are oppressed, I just fold it into one. But there's five claims here. But the first claim, and don't miss it, is the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Proclaim good news. Now, the, the Hebrew word for anointed is messiah. We get the word messiah. Or if you translate it into Greek, Christ. So this one who is speaking in Isaiah is the Lord's anointed, is the Lord's messiah, is the Lord's Christ. By virtue of receiving the Lord's spirit, he is anointed and he speaks as the messiah. This is the messiah speaking in Isaiah chapter 61. And all of the Jews of Jesus' day would understand that as well. That was clearly understood. The Messiah is speaking, and the Messiah is speaking of his mission. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me because, is upon me because he has anointed me then to do these five things. First, to preach good news to the poor. Now, good news is simply an English translation of the verb, which we also get the word gospel from. The word gospel just means good news. You could say the Spirit, the Lord has anointed me to gospelize the poor. That'd be a, if you want to invent a word, that'd be a legitimate translation, to gospelize the poor. 
Give good news to the poor. Now, now what poor are we talking about? Well, I think it becomes clear from Luke's gospel that we're dealing with the, the righteous and contrite poor. We already saw this theme. Turn back, turn back a little bit um, to chapter 1. Remember Mary's song? The same theme is struck here. God, God helping the, the humble, the repentant, the contrite poor. This isn't simply about classism and Marxism. This is about the, the poor in spirit. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Mary says this in verse 46 of chapter 1, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the prouds and the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. Mary is dealing with God's exaltation and grace towards the humble, the broken, the contrite, poor, and how he scatters and dashes the proud and the arrogant and those who in man's sight are great. Jesus has come to preach good news to the poor, not, not first and foremost those who are physically poor, but those who recognize their spiritual poverty. I'll, I'll prove that in a moment, but let's just move on to the second point. Liberty for captives and the oppressed. Now, in Isaiah, first and foremost, yes, it meant physical liberty from people literally locked up in Babylonian jail cells. And yet Jesus comes and he promises liberty, and the liberty he promises is, is a liberty from sin, slavery and oppression to sin and death. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And a little later, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus promises freedom. How are we to understand that? Liberty. Liberty and freedom. He promises sight for the blind. Liberty for those who are oppressed, the recovering of the sight of the blind. That's, this is, in fact, one of the miracles Jesus worked. Literally was giving sight to the blind. Are we to take that simply as, as a physical deliverance or is, is more in view here? And, and finally, to announce the year of Jubilee, that proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor is a reference to, we won't turn there, Leviticus chapter 25, and the year of Jubilee, which, which occurred in Israel, where, where all debts were canceled and all land was returned and all, all debts and obligations were forgiven. And that was a physical, real thing. So, so are we to take this in that Jesus is bringing in the social gospel or is there something more going on? I, I think there's something more going on. And here's why. Notice the way Luke reads this. And, and now we move to a stunningly audacious claim. And I want to go back and relook at these four in just a second. But I want to prove that I think there's more going on here than simply a physical deliverance. That Jesus is on a mission of more than simply healing people and giving sight to blind people and freeing physical captives. Notice what it says and what he says. He rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Now, there's nothing unusual there. Sitting was the common place for teaching. In chapter 5 of Luke, Jesus sits in a boat and teaches. I want you to get the drama from the right points. 
might be odd if, if I sort of sat down and, and went down. You might think, what's going on? Nothing unusual here. The point is this. Jesus is the, the famous now itinerant preacher. And Jesus has just read a passage which must have been very exciting to the Jews of his day. Remember, the Jews are under the thumb of Rome. And here's a passage about prominence and glory among the nations and, and blessing and being priests of God and being freed and being strengthened by God. What will Jesus say? And every eye turns to him. And everyone waits intently. And Jesus makes a stunningly audacious claim. Verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is huge. In your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. What is Jesus saying? I think, by the way, this is one of the reasons why Luke has not yet recorded any of Jesus' miracles. He doesn't want us to miss the point. He hasn't told us of any miracles yet. As soon as this is done, we'll get miracles. No miracles yet. I think this hinges on the phrase, in your hearing. Because there's two possibilities, I think, of what could be meant here. And I think one is the right answer. One possibility is Jesus is referencing, in general, his ministry. In general... Jesus is healing people, and in general, Jesus is working mighty signs. This is kind of like the answer he gives to the, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist in Luke 7. Tell them the lame are, are leaping. Tell them the blind can see. Tell them what's going on. But Luke hasn't included any miracles yet. And I think it all hinges on the phrase, in your hearing. Today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. In other words, what Jesus is saying, I think is that in my very speaking, the words that you are hearing in your ears fulfill what this text in Isaiah says. Because remember, the text in Isaiah was about a man with a message to speak, right? The word, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. This is, this is audacious. Jesus is saying, I believe, that in reading Isaiah 61 publicly, he is fulfilling Isaiah 61. You get that? In reading this passage to his audience, the synagogue, he is fulfilling that passage. What does that mean then? Point one here. That means his hearers are the poor, the captive, and the blind. Right? He says, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. It's not in general in my ministry, this is fulfilled. The very words you are hearing are the fulfillment of this passage. What Jesus is saying is, I am that Messiah. I am that one whom God's Spirit is upon. And by virtue of me reading Isaiah 61 to you, I am fulfilling the very commission I have to proclaim good news to the poor, the freeing of captives, giving of sight to the blind, and the year of God's jubilee. Do you see how audacious of a statement that is? And it all hinges on in your hearing. What he's saying is they're hearing something, and what they're hearing is the actual fulfillment of this passage. And that means, of course, then, that unless he was in the synagogue filled with blind people, this can't literally be what he's talking about. Unless these people are all locked in a synagogue, the, the liberty he's offering them isn't a first and foremost liberty from physical oppression. This is spiritual. 
This is spiritual. He's speaking to them. He's identifying them, the men and the women, or the men in the synagogue, as those who are the poor, which are blank. The hearers are poor, captive, and blind. It's huge. He's identifying his audience as the very ones Isaiah 61 is speaking to. And so you go back, and in light of that, then what he's saying is these men in this synagogue are poor. Well, not necessarily materially poor, but just like you and I, these, these people before God are poor. Poor of spirit. So when Jesus begins his, his sermon on the plain in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 20, blessed are the poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. In the parallel passage in Matthew, is poor in spirit. Jesus is speaking and he's, he's identifying these men in this synagogue as spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, just like you and I are. All of our righteous deeds are what? Medical waste, filthy garments is a nice way of saying it. We're poor. Jesus identifies his hearers as those poor people. Jesus identifies his hearers as captives. What type of captivity? Well, we already read about it in John 8, captives to sin. You know, you were born into this world. I was born into this world, a slave to sin, a slave to my desires, unable to do as I please. But whatever my heart and my desires tell me to do, that I do. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad which I don't want to do, I do. And Jesus, first and foremost, is offering a freedom from the tyranny and the power of sin and death. He said, but there's a, there's a rub, though, because you've got to rec- own this category, don't you? I mean, maybe now you're starting to see the, the foundation for why people might want to throw them off a cliff in a few minutes. Because once it clicks, hey, you're calling us poor? You're calling us slaves? You're calling us blind? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And yes, we are. Jesus tells his disciple elsewhere, blessed are you for having eyes that see and ears that hear, right? Because we're dead spiritually. We don't see and we don't understand. Without God's spirit, we, we cannot hear and receive his word. And Jesus is identifying those who he is speaking to, and I would say those I'm speaking to as well, outside of Christ, are poor, are captive, and are blind. There's another shockingly audacious implication of what he just said. And that is that Jesus identifies himself. He is the Lord's Messiah and Savior. Stunningly audacious, both in his designation and his interpretation of his audience, but equally so about his designation and interpretation of himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Jesus is saying, in reading it, in me saying that, that's me talking. He has anointed me. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord's anointed. He's also the Savior. Where do I get that from? Well, because as much as the primary ministry, at least spoken of in Isaiah 61, is one of proclamation, Jesus actually adds, so this has to be intentional, Jesus adds a quotation from Isaiah 58, 6 in there. Maybe you didn't miss it, but that fourth point, to set at liberty those who are pressed, that's a little different. He's not announcing. He's actually freeing. So he's to announce good news to the poor. He's to proclaim liberty to captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But the fourth one, to set at liberty. He's actually doing the freeing. freeing sorry, He is the Savior. He's the Lord's Messiah. He's the Lord's Savior, the one who will do the freeing. 
Stunningly audacious claims. Stunningly audacious claims. There's also one other implication that I think is tremendously important for us, and that is this. Number three. Today is the day of salvation if you will hear. Today is the day of salvation if you will hear. What do I mean? Well, think this through. Isaiah writes, Isaiah 61, speaking prophetically of a future person, Messiah, who would be anointed by God and receive his spirit to have a a ministry of speaking and, and freeing and announcing. And Jesus reads that very text to a room full of people, not unlike us in some respects. And Jesus says that by virtue of him reading that, because he is the Messiah, he has fulfilled that. Well, doesn't it stand to reason then that as we read, as God's word is spoken here this morning, no, I'm not the Lord's anointed. Let there be no mistake on that. But that same offer, that same fulfillment that's taking place, again and again in Scripture we read, today is the day of salvation, right? 2 Corinthians 6, 1-4, We appeal with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, In a favorable time I will listen to you. In the day of salvation I will help you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And it could be that Jesus himself, right now, if people will hear, could set captives free. And Jesus himself, right now, if you will listen, with open blind eyes. And Jesus himself now could be speaking good news to the poor. You see, every, every time this passage is read, the potential and the possibility of Jesus doing this work is, is active. Is a sort of perennial nowness, todayness. And so don't let that pass you by. God is offering you, he's offering me Good news if we'll recognize our poverty. And God is recognizing, God is offering freedom if we will recognize ourselves as captive to sin. And God is promising sight if we'll recognize that we're blind. And He is announcing a year of total and absolute forgiveness and reconciliation if we'll but recognize we need it. Make no mistake, we are the poor, we are the captive, we are the blind, apart from Christ. And he is the Messiah, and he is the Savior. And today, if you will have it, today, if you will hear it, today, if you will receive it, it's the day of salvation, if you will hear. Today, Psalm 95 says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, or, moving on to our final point, as his fickle audience. We see a fickle response. In light of his stunningly audacious claims of both who they are and who he is, how do they respond? Well, it's programmatic for what's going to see in the rest of the gospel. They, they initially spoke well of him, verse 22. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. So it's a positive response. They recognize the authority. They recognize the grace, his, his speaking. And again and again, this is the distinctive mark of Jesus. We don't know what he looked like. We don't know if he was tall, if he was short. We, he, he certainly didn't look like Anglo-Nordic, blonde-haired Jesus. I'm pretty sure of that. He would have looked like a Middle Eastern Jew. But we don't know. 
But again and again and again, the attention comes to the words that come out of his mouth because he is the word of God. Again and again, his teaching has authority. No one ever spoke like this man. And here, the gracious words, they recognize his teaching, his speaking is unusual. And yet they're not fully persuaded. They spoke well of him and marveled at his words. But they stumbled over his familiarity and ancestry. They said, is this not Joseph's son? Which is to say, isn't this the boy who grew up that we all knew? By the way, notice how Luke has already inserted for us, the reader, the knowledge, no, this is not Joseph's son, right? Being as it was supposed to be the son of Joseph, for the reader at least, that issue, that stumbling block's already been removed. But his audience stumbles over it. In fact, in a parallel account in Mark, Mark unpacks even further what they're saying. Mark 6, 3, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and Joseph and James, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters with us, and they took offense at him? It's kind of hard to hear such bold claims, both of who you are and who he is, from somebody you saw grow up. And they stumble over it. They're kind of, you know, he's speaking well, this is some good stuff, but they're not taking him seriously. Oh, don't make that mistake today. Don't make that mistake today. Don't be like these people. Because you can't stay there long. You can't stay indifferent about Jesus for long. Jesus is going to resolve. It will resolve one way or the other. Either you will bow the knee to the living Christ, your God and your Savior, or you too will want to kill him, as these people do in just a few short verses. You can't stay indifferent and ambivalent to Jesus for long. No one ever does. So resolve the matter. Call on the Lord while he may be found. Recognize your poverty, recognize your captivity, recognize your blindness, recognize him as the Messiah and Savior, and be freed and see and be blessed. I'm going to call the worship team up now as we get ready for our closing song. I just want to read again Paul's words. In a favorable time, I will listen to you. In a day of salvation, I will help you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now. Is the day of salvation. Now is the time when Christ will set people free and give liberty to those who are captive and sight to those who are blind. If we will just call on him, if we will just turn to him, if we will just trust him, these things can be true of us now and this passage can be fulfilled today. Let's sing. Please stand with us and uh, sing in Christ alone.